criminal procedure. So when we look at comparative criminal justice, we see there's an interaction between the type of legal system you have, whether it's civil or common law, and the effects on cr criminal, let's call them outputs, to use the, the language of systems theory, that is, uh, outputs on the criminal justice system that are designed to control crime. Now, as we talked about last Wednesday after we had our moot court meeting, there are two basic police functions. Uh, again, the normal one is <coughs> what sociologists call deviance control. You might call that just you know ordinary or common criminal enforcement. And civil order. And like so many dilemmas in public policy, <clears throat> there's a tension between the two of them. Clearly, a country that is in, has political stability, where government enjoys high legitimacy, uh, you're not going to have this conflict because you simply have much less of an issue of dealing with civil order issues. To the extent that a country is politically unstable, <clears throat> whether it comes from historic injustices or rivalries between ethnic and racial groups, uh, a tradition of a repressive state that leads to a violation of civil liberties or, and the like, the police that are actually called on to provide uh, social order. These are highly politically tense situations, so the police actions are interpreted as being politically motivated, usually favoring one side as opposed to the other, either one ethnic group compared with another or the state against society. Um, this dilemma emerges because the theory of both is to have good community relations. Now we know from our <coughs> reading of chapter 5 that the traditional models vary a lot. In, in France, the police is regarded as historically hostile and actually does much more violent repressive measures. For England and, and the United Kingdom, it's a bit of a stereotype and an exaggeration, but the friendly cop, the constable on patrol, as the acronym stands for, the Bobby, uh, until relatively recently unarmed, uh, largely uh, following up on matters without any threat of the use of force or fear of the use of force because there are far few arms in the society. And even further, in Japan, the example of either the rural or the urban police model, uh, specifically in the, in the rural countryside, it's getting to know everyone in the neighborhood but staying there forever. In the urban zone, you're on a a shift once every three days for 24 hours where you're really a social worker and the kind of uh, involvement with the family would be seen perhaps in the West as a, a type of surveillance on the privacy of individuals but you're supposed to solve marital and family disputes, encourage uh, sharing of information uh, and cr create the kind of in intimacy that sees the policeman as indispensable to the community's social fabric. Now, it's very clear that uh, these, this type of community policing, to use the contemporary term for try to encourage much more intimacy between the police and the locality in a variety of ways, uh, is not possible everywhere. It's also true that uh, in terms of civil order, uh, countries that are more homogeneous are going to have fewer problems than countries that are heterogeneous. There's a very high correlation 
and, and somewhat it's, it's, it's not even causally related, it's definitional. Uh, the more diverse a country's population is, the more on average, and certainly during a certain period of time during development of the country, the more likely it's going to have these kinds of frictions, in this case not only between the ethnic groups but also between the police and the community. So if, if the purpose of deviance control is to try to get high degrees of <coughs> local confidence, trust, and communication and participation with the police, that's going to be hampered if the state calls upon the police to provide order. And that typically, in, in politically tense situations, especially in countries without much training and resources, done with violence and sometimes lethal violence. The development of tear gas, batons, shields, uh, tight formations uh, that avoid violence you know, is, is harder to do in a highly uninstitutionalized state with poor resources and poor training and poor practice. And of course, authoritarian regimes may just simply prefer to use force to send a message that this is what happens to you if you misbehave. Uh, last night, I don't know if you saw 60 Minutes, but Junior was on. Junior is the nickname of John Gotti Jr. I didn't get to see the whole interview, but the pieces of it I saw in between my own community policing inside the house. Uh, that's a joke. Um, Junior was asked pointedly, uh, you know, could you justify his dad, uh, John Gotti, uh, you know, murdering all these people? And he said, yeah, I, in a way I can. And what he said was, you know, the people that got murdered were people like my father from the streets. And in the streets we had a, a set of rules. They're different from the rules in society. But basically, you don't get killed unless you break those rules. Stealing business, ratting on somebody, um, maybe, of course, murdering somebody or disrespecting one of their kids. You know, it's not anything that society would condone in terms of justifying murder, but he basically said, you know, this is our culture. It's not arbitrary. It's predictable. Uh, and that's the signal that's sent if you misbehave. You end up in a garbage dumpster somewhere or you're in the uh, pylons of the former Giants football stadium where various arm, uh, organized crime people are supposedly have been left uh, and so forth. Um, and, you know, in, in the mafia, Cosa Nostra, whatever, uh, at least the Italian version of it in the United States, if Junior is telling the truth, what he's suggesting is that um, that's the signal that everybody kind of understands and agrees in a kind of consensus that those are the rules of the game. And, you know, it, it is a politically st stable system in, to the extent that uh, it's self-regulating, it's more violent, there's more murder, but it continues and it seems to be able to continue even in the face of tremendous uh, U.S. government pressure to, to end it. It's not only the profit motive, but there are lots of cultural reasons why the system continues and, and looking up to strong father figures, including this incredible scene of, of Gotti berating his grandchild across the prison glass for disrespecting him and his mother, and the mother promising to punish the kid the way he's likely to get killed. The kid was probably eight or ten, I don't know exactly. Um, Probably the kid had the nerve to say, why are you behind bars, or something like that. I don't know. I didn't see enough of the interview. Uh, you can obviously see that on the website. So it's very hard to get the mutual respect that you need to 
to fight crime and control in a deviance control model when you have paramilitary units, the army, or the police using lethal force. Uh, and in an authoritarian regime, they're not interested in being trusted. They just want to be feared. And through fear, the great motivator is to disarticulate and to demobilize any opposition to the regime. Um, now, in trying to address some of these problems, th there have been two major developments described in the chapter. The first is professionalism, and the second is community policing. Now, professionalism is primarily focused on things like resources, training, but also the softer side of developing good relations with the community. So it's not a completely distinct phenomenon from community policing. The dilemma here for professionalism is that Fairchild, the author of this book that we're reading, argues that uh, the police, has bec as it becomes more professional, it becomes more remote and more distant and less connected. So uh, it's not clear that it's actually serving the purpose of getting closer to the community. But what has professionalism tried to achieve? First, better training. Okay, there's always been training for police. In Germany, the chapter says it's three years. In England uh, and the United States, it's typically six months. It's also trying to raise the requirements. So about 20 or 30 years ago, major metropolitan uh, police departments if they didn't require a college degree, at least they'd require that you be in, in training to get a college degree on the theory that a more educated force would be a much more uh, uh, higher performing, more effective force. A second, it's the use of merit hiring. Merit hiring is not just taking the test, but the idea that your credentials generally are determining how you get the job, not your relationship to someone in the local precinct or your ethnic group membership and the like. Third is to have the most advanced technology. This uh, includes the use of firearms that are superior to what the people you are trying to control, but also having the best communications, the best and fastest cars, uh, and any other kind of, I, I guess they, they had those, uh, what do you call them, <coughs> GPS? Is that what it's called? Uh, devices in the police cars quite a few years before they become commercially available. Um, and that would also include low technology, you know, using bicycles and motorcycles where it's appropriate, or for that matter, no technology, having the cop walking on the beat, which is theoretically is meant to send a signal that you're there, you're present, you're providing confidence, although some studies suggest that the cops on the beat don't have any effect uh, on the local population. Um, another point of professionalism, of course, is incorruptibility. Uh, which is a very difficult problem in the developing world because many people, many police officers get their jobs by paying bribes in order to get a return on future bribes. Uh, and in any event, you know, in the major municipalities in the United States, there's tremendous police corruption, certainly through bribery by people engaged in illicit activities. Uh, but there's also the kind of gray area where Certainly in Japan, where gift giving is almost required almost with every interaction, you also give gifts to the police. And it's very difficult in J the Japanese system to, to draw that line. Even in the Japanese system, one, what we would regard as corruption, that is the toleration of the uh, 
Japanese mafia by the police, where they're closely watched and closely monitored. And there are, there's clearly, a, a, according to the chapter's account, a admission that they're going to be allowed to break the law in certain defined boundaries. And as long as they don't cross those boundaries into the broader society, the police will basically let them alone. It's not something Japan would probably like to have, but it's kind of accepted. And similarly, political contributions in Japan, like in Italy and, and France, seem to have more of a bribing effect of public officials and police than they do in the United States and, and the more Germanic countries. That could change over time, of course, particularly with economic development, where you can pay uh, officers much more money so that they, it would become ethically wicked to take such a bribe. Uh, and finally, and perhaps most importantly, professionalism implies treating everyone the same under the law. The rule of law refers not only to the government and its relations with the, uh, different parts of the government to each other and the government to society, but also specifically how the police deal with society, and, and that means no discrimination, and that the discretion is used wisely rather than to uh, you know, favor one group, one person, uh, and most of the studies seem to suggest that you know, police evolved historically to protect the property of the upper classes, and the police kind of have a bias, and this was pointed out in the example in the chapter, of favoring the middle class against the working class. That's a term, a distinction they use in England that we don't use in the United States, but middle class uh, in England implies more like what we would call upper middle class. You know, people clearly with money and, and, and well, well established in their careers, with uh, security and living in nice neighborhoods, whereas the riffraff that work in factories, and especially immigrants, are regarded with some disdain. So even though the bobby, the cop, that you see with those uh, fancy fur hats in the, in the Tower of London, or uh, the bobby on patrol, uh, actually may have some hidden attitudes that militate against treating white people alike. And the problem with the professional model is that it tends to for whatever reason, as with the military professionalism you might study in a comparative politics class, makes the police force feel a little bit superior to everyone else. If you raise educational standards and you raise salaries, that makes people feel like they're better and they know more. In short, they don't want to be exposed to civilian oversight or control. And they also don't want to let these people out there get too close to them. Now, it wouldn't have to be that way. But that seems to be the way it has evolved. Now, the second art, uh, reform on, is community policing. And th this is something that just has not been attempted in a country like France, where historically the police is just regarded as part of the repressive, repressive apparatus. It dates not only to the monarchy, but especially to Napoleon, where he had surveillance all over his population to make sure there'd be no threats to his control over the regime. And uh, the French police is known for its brutality historically. It, it's important to point out, though, as the chapter does, that in 1968, during the student riots and other industrial strikes, there was no one killed, even though these strikes went on there and as it occurred by coincidence or not in many other countries um, where people were killed, including the United States, where 1968 and then 1969, but especially 1968 was the worst year of the rioting of the 1960s, and many people were killed by the police of the, and the police themselves. 
Um, in Germany, community policing has been tried and it's been a mixed success. There are three times in German history where they've used this slogan, the something like, the police are your friends. Uh, the first time was, uh, and all three of these moments were moments of relative calm, but they quickly fell apart with this political strife that followed and made it difficult to develop a very positive relationship with the community, although it's more positive than the French view of their own police. The first was in the Weimar Republic, following World War I and all of that turmoil. The idea was to create a democratic order with a democratic constitution. And the political polarization that emerged even before the rise of hyperinflation uh, and all of the radical political conflict between the far right and the far left during that period uh, made it very difficult for the Weimar Republic to avoid uh, putschs and, and coups and, and, and armed attacks. And so the police force quickly became a repressive uh, model. The same phrase was used by Hitler, and obviously that was quickly discarded by Hitler himself as he organized his police state and persecuted the Jews and um, handicapped people and others. And then it was used in the 1950s following World War II after all the Nazis were purged out of the police force, which was basically the political arm of the Nazi regime and had many special secret police like the Gestapo, the SS, the SA, and so forth. And that, that, that was much better and much more successful. But then in the 60s, they had a, lot, a rise of the Bider Monhoff gang. There's a very good documentary about that group, um, as it was called. Uh, Ulrike uh, Meinhoff, I think. And I don't know what Bader's first name was. But they were a bunch of, of, of left-wing anarchists who uh, committed armed robbery and murder. And, and you know, basically, the German police, according to this account, was able to, to end the terrorism that Germany was afflicted with by very careful scientific policing. So the good news is that terrorism can come and go, as it also has mostly done, at least from the political terrorism in Italy. You still have mafia terrorism, although, again, the mafia terrorism is not against innocent civilians in the sense that you're totally unconnected to what's going on, but people somehow uh, involved with controlling the mafia or as they see it, committed duplicity against the mafia. But the good news is that terrorism can be, or at least has been, gradually reduced and eliminated from German society. And that's re-improved relations with the police. Uh, and to some extent, one can say that professionalism there has been successful because it was an information gathering effort that led to the monitoring of these terrorist groups and their eventual arrests and punishment. Uh, and finally, in England, you have the situation where, because of its former colonial status, many refugees and former immigrants uh, have produced large minority populations. This produced the Brixton's riots of 1981, which were shocking. Uh, Brixton was a neighborhood in East London, which is a historically working class, poor neighborhood in London. Uh, the characters in My Fair Lady, with their strong accents from which Pygmalion came, uh, Liza Doolittle. Uh, were from this neighborhood. And these riots led to many deaths and it shocked the country. And Lord Scarborough did a report which urged you know, professionalism and community policing as a solution to this model. And England has tried to implement the model. And it's been extremely difficult because uh, 
minority members of Britain were really an underclass. They were relatively new arrivals. And increasingly, with, the, uh, with South Asian immigrants, there's the specter of Islamic terrorism. That is not a theory, but a reality from 7-7, their 9-11, the uh, bombing on July 7th, uh, 2007. I think it's 7-7. Uh, of the, the tube, what they call the subway in London, and, and then the subsequent failed attempt about 10 days later. Uh, the dilemma for Britain, of course, is that the police never used carried arms. And the, the, the dilemma is that if you start carrying arms, then if they're opposed to you, they'll start carrying arms, and it becomes a little mini arms race. Uh, but it becomes too dangerous not to carry arms when they're already carrying arms. It worked well when England had extremely low murder rate. I think, I remember 30 or 40 years ago, there were six murders in England for a whole year. In major cities of the United States, like New York, at its peak, it was well over three per day. And it's considered a big achievement that New York's murder rate is slightly below one per day on average. Uh, obviously, England's murder rate has gotten much higher for a variety of reasons, not just dealing with the fact that, uh, that it's a much more heterogeneous population, but it's clear you can't have a disarmed police force if their community is using arms. Yeah? Um, in England, or I guess London, is the Metropolitan Police the same as Scotland or New Scotland Yard? Scotland Yard is a detective agency like the FBI. So it's part of the Metropolitan well, I think Scotland Yard is entire, I don't know if it's England or the entire Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, but, you know, I th there's a lot of interaction when you hear news about terrorist attacks in England and so forth. Scotland Yard is there investigating the same way the FBI might investigate what ordinarily might be a local crime. It's a multi, you know, you, you commit a terrorist act that violates the local law of murder in the United States, but it would also violate federal law, which would bring the FBI in. Also, the better forensic capabilities, uh, more sophisticated technology, the famous crime labs and so forth. Some people would say infamous because with sophisticated forensics you also can make big errors if you're overconfident uh, in linking a fiber to somebody. Because it, you know, it could be a coincidence that the fiber's there and so forth. And there have been, of the 242 exonerated people from DNA evidence that has come about in the last 15 years. A fair, the most common error was the result of police lineups. And they assume it's because people assume that the person had to be in the lineup. There's no requirement that the lineup have the person because you don't know who, the, you may not, you don't know who did it. So almost everybody who's in a police lineup ends up picking somebody. And you know, quite often you can look at someone straight in the face and memorize the face, and then somebody comes back three, five weeks later, and they look similar, you know, truly similar, and you can pick that person out of the lineup, be sure you did it, be sure that that person did it, and then the DNA evidence a decade or two later exonerates the person. So the answer to your question is that uh, Britain's system is more centralized but not, as in the United States, less centralized than France. Um, the Metropolitan Police of London has emerged since they started electing mayors of some cities in England, which is only a recent phenomenon in the last 20 or so years. 
before it would be a, a unit within the national system of policing. France is a pure national system, just like its educational system. The whole police force is, is organized from the capital, Paris, uh, and that's a different set of traditions. Uh, just to conclude, community policing um, means that you're going to have more community-based patrolling. Uh, second, you're going to emphasize non-emergency services. And I remember coming home on the train, and there's no taxi at 3 a.m. on the last train to my parents' house, and the police station was located right near the uh, police station. I went in there and asked for a ride from the police off officer, and they just laughed at me. So, You're going to walk, fellow. And so I walked four miles and got home an hour later, walking fast. Uh, but you know, in, in this model, you know, you would help out everyone in the community develop good relations. I mean, that you wouldn't buy their groceries for them, but you know, any kind of emergency, you would provide help, including giving a ride to somebody if they really needed it. A third, third, and perhaps most importantly, increased accountability. You know, if there's a complaint, there's a thorough, independent investigation by a third party without any uh, direct relationship to the police office. And you would have regular reviews of reports of complaints from the community about what is being done. And finally, greater decentralization of the command structure, uh, including maybe even civilians being involved in the command structure, just to make sure that uh, the people making the big decisions are located in the neighborhoods. And this would include also placing individuals in the local neighborhoods for a period of time. It might include a model where you would have police officers assigned only to a neighborhood and not to the whole precinct. <coughs> and they might be in a team policing approach where the entire team would be located in that neighborhood for a period of time, six months to a year. And that way they'd really get to know the people there. And it could also involve you know, a formal relationship of neighborhood watch groups by civilians who would be giving some police authority to arrest people uh, if they so chose uh, in that approach. Um, these experiments have been <coughs> attempted in the United States. Uh, the chapter mentions San Diego as one area where it seems to have had some success. And an article by David Bailey, a book rather, <coughs> about the Japanese model of having uh, emulating the Japanese meth method of really making police officers living in the neighborhoods, storefront offices, uh, around, uh, uh, available around the clock, members of the family of the police officer being available to help as well, um, is a model that he thinks we can take inspiration from. <clears throat> the problem is not Bailey argues that American culture is different from Japanese culture, but that the, Ameri the American bureaucratic traditions just don't want, won't, the, the individuals won't want to give up power. Because essentially, if you make <clears throat> the local precinct part of the local neighborhood, then the p local neighborhood is more in charge of the police officer and vice versa than the local supervisor would be. I, there's more to say about that, but we need to move on. Are there any questions about uh, comparative policing? Okay, then let's turn to constitutional review. We have looked at a lot of these subjects before, and the, so I'm, I'm just going to emphasize the areas that we haven't discussed uh, to date. Uh, the first, of course, is that uh, constitutional review, which is usually called judicial review, doesn't have to be done by a justice, so therefore, Judicial review is the, the term for the United States where 
the judiciary, in particular the Supreme Court, since the uh, Marbury versus Madison decision of 1803, under Judge Marshall's decision, provides the striking down of laws that are inconsistent with the Constitution or administrative acts by the executive branch. Uh, and that would include both states as well as the federal government. In fact, there wasn't a single federal government judicial review by the US Supreme Court until the Dred Scott decision of 1854, uh, some 41 years later. But there were many decisions, <coughs> beginning with McCulloch versus Maryland, striking down the, <coughs> the, the, the National Bank, which regulated uh, federal-state relations to try to make them consistent with the, <coughs> with the practice of the Constitution. Now, the first thing to note is that most countries in the world do have a form of constitutional review, but they're not all judicial review. We've already studied France, where, uh, remember, the Council of State is not even in the judiciary, and it reviews appeals on constitutional basis with strong opinions of administrative law. And the Constitutional Council, which includes non-judges and others, does provide a form of judicial review, but only prior to the law's promulgation. So it not, does not have the requirement for any case in common law countries, which is an act of conflict. Uh, you know, not a conflict of the past. It's, it can't be moot. It still has to be a major conflict. In France, it can't be a conflict yet. It has to be before the law is even tested. It doesn't test every law. The council only does it when there's a specific request from senior government officials or the parliament, called the National Assembly, uh, to determine whether there is a possible contradiction between the French Fifth Republic Constitution and the particular law that's about to be promulgated. It does not seem to focus on administrative practices, as I said, because they have the Council of State to deal with the way the government operates. But that's <coughs> primarily for administrative law. <coughs> Excuse me. So the questions of the relationship between France's parts of its semi-presidential constitution doesn't really get reviewed by anyone. Another approach is not, <coughs> <coughs> excuse me, not to have any review at all. Saudi Arabia and England come to mind. In England, the only review really is the European Court of Human Rights, which we'll talk about in a second. But at least as far as its national practice goes, there's no formal power of judicial or executive review of the constitutionality of laws and acts. Why would that be? They don't have a written constitution. They do have a constitution. It's in the minds of everybody. It's unwritten. Um, but you can't really find a written phrase that you can prove is in contradiction. However, the article mentions that a number of English scholars argue, and I think persuasively, that there is judicial review that's informal. Uh, and that comes through interpreting laws and arguing that they are inconsistent with either the common law or the basic principles of English justice that have evolved, evolved over seven to eight uh, centuries. Things like writ of habeas corpus or uh, due process of law, or, or the rule of law more generally. Uh, these kinds of basic principles have been, in, you know, been used to strike down, in effect, a, a statute, in spite of the fact that England has a doctrine of parliamentary supremacy. 
Uh, we can ask why, how this could be, because as a general matter, whatever Parliament says goes, but the judge is willing to strike it down and the Parliament has agreed to follow. Uh, I think, you know, in, in, a, in effect, what they would say is, uh, in interpreting this law, it must be interpreted in light of the absolute requirement to have habeas corpus. So when they started having detention procedures of immigrants, especially suspected terrorists that were violated habeas corpus, they would just simply say, in effect, you know, rewrite the law. So it, it requires an absolute charge of a criminal, criminal behavior prior to locking somebody up. Finally, uh, the other model, and there, there, you can invent many combinations of models, but a, a very typical one, such as used in India, is to have uh, the Supreme Court or the Constitutional Court strike down laws and then have the Parliament respond. The Parliament can respond, uh, like in the English model, by accepting or rejecting, but in the Indian model, it's implied that you know, Parliament has the final say on whether it agrees or not with what the Constitutional Court has reviewed. Romania has a similar kind of procedure. So it doesn't put all the power into an unelected body, usually unelected. Some countries like states have judges who are elected, but who are in for a very long time or for life. And there's no formal way to hold the judges to account Although informally, of course, there's political response to decisions. There's critical evaluation of the written judgments that judges make and come up with. And if you have a very active bar in particular, the lawyers will be very critical of any kind of opinion that really reeks of bias or poor craftsmanship and so forth. When Judge Stevens announced his retirement last week at the age of nearly 90 from the US Supreme Court, one of the comments that have been made is that he was a masterful writer. Uh, Abe always wrote his own first drafts, in fact, which I guess I gather some of the judges only write the final draft or go over the final draft of some of their written opinions. Uh, and this kind of ability to write excellent opinions is one that gave him enormous amounts of prestige and influence. Uh, and we'll talk more about that confirmation process as we go forward in, in our remaining weeks in the class.